Welcome to the Books Talk podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. This program was recorded at the Bethany Branch Library on December 8, 2017. Scott from the Bennett Martin Public Library discusses books he read in 2017. Thank you for attending yet another of my book talks. Um, I will open with just a little bit of uh, library business. Um, first of all, is there anybody who is still not on the email list for reminders about the group that would like to be um, on a, a list for uh, updates uh, to let you know what's upcoming at future weeks? If not, uh, let me let me know. I can add you to that email list. I'm still the person that sends out those messages uh, once every couple of weeks. I appreciate that. I always forget about it. Well, my, my philosophy is when we first started that list, a couple of people said, I appreciate being on that list because that way I know if you're going to be coming to talk so I don't have to come. It's like, well, that's not exactly why I set it up, but um, because well, they, were, they were not a... You didn't do all science fiction. Yeah, they, they, were, they were not a big fan of science fiction, but um, today, today is a bit of a, a grab bag here. Uh, originally, when it was put on the schedule uh, for both Gear and Bethany, uh, it was... A second round of my theater book talk, because I gave a theater book talk a couple of years ago um, after having uh, sort of rejoined the theater community locally. Um, And I've been doing a lot of theater reading, uh, but I realized that uh, the vast majority of what I've been reading theater-wise was not something that I could particularly share, and I'll explain why in just a moment. Um, So this, this got turned into instead... Uh, as I've mentioned before, I use the online service library thing to catalog everything that I read so that I have a record of, of my readings. A lot of people just do that in handwritten notebooks, and that's that's cool. It's called Library Thing, um, which is very similar to something else that's out there called Goodreads, which a lot more people use, but I prefer Library Thing myself. Um, yep, LibraryThing.com. Um, and... Uh, one of the things with library thing that you can do is you can add subject tags to whatever you've read, and I, I tag things with read 2017, read 2016, so I can keep a track of what I've read. And long and the short of it is, since I started using library thing, and I've also tried to go, go back into my past and remember the books I read as a kid and put peg them into specific years. This is the first year that I have passed 100 books. Um, And so really what this list is, is me looking back at what I've read in 2017, the 103 books so far, and picking the ones that I really enjoyed. There were a bunch of stinkers, and those are not on your list. Um, But these are the ones I really enjoyed, and I'll just just try to get to as many of them as I can, but I'm not necessarily going to get to everything that's on the list. But all of these things are things that I would recommend in one way or another. But because the first section of this is theater... Let me give you a little bit of background on why I did not end up going with a fully theater um, theme here. After being in several plays at the Community Playhouse and the Tada Theater downtown, this year I was asked to be on the play reading committee for the selection of what plays the Lincoln Community Playhouse is going to be performing during the 2018-2019 season. As part of that, I've been reading tons and tons of plays and theater-related things. The, the drawback is that we still haven't finished our list, and so I can't talk about the ones that are still being considered. So the only ones I have on my list that I can talk about are things that have, for one reason or another, not made the list for what might possibly be at the Community Playhouse in the, in the future. I will hit a few of these just to say that they were really good plays, um, but for the most part, uh, if you're not interested in the play format, reading scripts, basically, um, a lot of this stuff may not be of, of direct interest to you. However, uh, I will start with that section of my book talk list here um, and just sort of uh, skim over it very quickly. I will point out uh, that the library has Terry Pratchett's 
Weird Sisters, the play. Terry Pratchett is a fantasy author uh, who passed away a, a couple of years ago, um, but at the time of his uh, primary writing, he was sort of considered one of today's greatest fantasists. Um, and he has this entire series of novels uh, set in the Discworld fantasy series, um, in which he pokes fun at every fantasy trope that's out there. I mean, he mocks things like Terry Brooks and uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and, and all these other well-known fantasy authors, while still paying loving tribute to the genre of fantasy. Three of his novels, including Weird Sisters, have been turned into stage plays, and they've been hugely successful in England. Uh, I don't believe anybody has performed them here in the U.S., and the Lincoln Community Playhouse will also not be performing it next year. Um, nonetheless, however, Weird Sisters was a fun play. It's the only one of the three that has come out in play format that the libraries have, uh, but this is the library copy. It is basically Macbeth, uh, told with a fantasy setting with the three, the, the weird sisters are the three witches from Macbeth, but they're comical, fun, humorous <laughs> characters and, and would have been interesting to see some people bring to life on the stage. If, if you're at all interested in Shakespeare's Macbeth play, but you'd like to see it done with a, a considerable <coughs> twist, then the weird sisters is a, a fascinating play to read. And honestly, in play format, you'd be done with it in 45 minutes. It's a really quick and simple read, but it's a lot of fun, um, as opposed to Macbeth, which is not a lot of fun, uh, so uh, take that as you wish. Um, oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah, and the props list. I mean, this is literally a script for people that want to perform it as a play. Uh, you still have to get the rights, permissions and stuff like that, and so you have to contact the, the uh, script writer um, um, and uh, get his permission, but otherwise everything you need to perform that play is in that in the script book, which is the case with most of the scripts that I have here. Uh, most of them, whether they're recent vintages or classics from the 40s and 50s, have not only the dialogue, but they also have the uh, stage description in terms of how things should be laid out, and also the props lists and the sound and light cues and things like that. So, I will explain, um, and this is sort of talking a little out of turn, uh, but uh, there was a theme for what is going to be coming up in the Playhouse, um, which is going to be celebration of women in theater. Um, that will be the theme for the 2018-2019. So a lot of what I have here is plays by women or featuring very strong female characters, hence the three witches of uh, the Weird Sisters, which is um, why that was on the consideration list. Um, other things that uh, I have listened to or read uh, this past year, uh, just running down my list, On the 20th Century uh, is a classic uh, play that, or a musical that was done in 1978 originally on Broadway and enjoyed a 2015 revival. The 1978 version featured Madeline Kahn in the main female role and the 2015 uh, featured Kristen Chenoweth uh, um, doing that role. And both versions were heavily nominated for the Tony Awards. Um, I don't believe 20th Century uh, won in 2015, um, but uh, I read both the uh, script um, of the play and I listened to the soundtracks. Um, so this is not just a book talk, but it also is a music talk. Uh, the soundtrack to the On the 20th Century from 1978 was really quite fascinating, um, but what was, what was even more fascinating was listening to the 2015 version and seeing all the changes they made. Um, in the three or four decades since the original production, uh, they changed the lyrics in a number of the songs because they were considerably dated, e even though some things, when they're set in an earlier time period, you leave them alone because they're symptomatic of that time period, they, they felt like there were enough things that they really wanted to update that the 2015 soundtrack is considerably different than the 1978. Uh, and uh, basically with the uh, um, soundtracks, 
Uh, unfortunately, the library has not bought them on CD. In fact, more and more the libraries are buying their music, or not buying, but uh, getting a hold of their music uh, for digital versions. Um, and so if you at all do Hoopla, um, our digital download service, you're going to find tons and tons of Broadway and motion picture soundtracks in that, and they're buying less and less CDs, uh, which for me as a collector of CDs is very frustrating, um, but the, the, at least they don't lose CD, or they don't lose uh, the digital downloads. Uh, um, we get a get huge, they don't get scratched up, and we have a high loss rate on CDs, unfortunately. So I can understand their reasoning with regards to that. Uh, next on my list was Stage Door by Edna Ferber and George S. Kaufman. Uh, it is a, a marvelous uh, play set in a New York City home for actress wannabes. Basically, everybody that lives in the uh, house that is the main setting for the play uh, is a, an actress who sometimes has a secondary job, but they're all trying out for musicals, and uh, primarily musicals, even though Stage Door itself is not a musical. Uh, most of the actresses um, sing songs to each other um, and are also trying out for um, staged musicals. And there's a, a thwarted romance, uh, several thwarted romances, and uh, people who uh, move on to, into the motion picture industry, which the setting is back in the 1920s and motion pictures is just sort of starting to encroach on the theater world at that point um, so there's an interesting subplot uh, with one of the young women uh, um, who had been living at uh, the house that they're all staying in breaking into the uh, movies and coming back later as a huge star um, it's, a, it's a fun, uh, interesting play and the library, actually, surprisingly I was uh, stunned to find this and where did I put it still has a copy of it from its original um, printing. So it is a uh, interesting play if you uh, like classic old uh, ribald like comedies and stuff old. like that. Yeah, well, it's been out in my car overnight. Oh. So um, uh, it is a, an excellent play. Another one that was considered but uh, ultimately decided against uh, for the next season of the Playhouse. Some other things that uh, we read uh, for the Playhouse were The Little Foxes by Lillian Hellman. Excellent play. Lillian Hellman is a wonderful playwright. However, uh, we had some serious. Uh, uh, concerns about uh, some of the things that were in the play, uh, which are appropriate for the time period, uh, but we were just um, cautious about putting them on the stage, things about the treatment of uh, African Americans and things like that. So um, I recommend reading the play. It's, it's a fascinating read, uh, but it will not be on the stage this year. Crimes of the Heart by Beth Henley, which is a, a marvelous Southern uh, drama, drama comedy featuring an eclectic um, group of sisters who are gathering and uh, their weird relationships, as well as a couple of male characters. It was a fun one, and it, it um, is a cool Pulitzer Prize winning play, uh, so if you're looking for a really high quality play that has won several awards, I would consider uh, that one a good um, read. Um, ultimately it sort of just didn't quite make the cut of what we were considering. I read this one because I was just basically scoping out the 812 section, the American Playwrights um, at the Ben Martin Library, um, and unfortunately that section has seen a lot of heavy weeding over the years, and so a lot of things are, are no longer in the collection, but I was trying to pick out the things that I thought might be worth considering for the Playhouse um, and The Sisters Rosenzweig by Wendy Wasserstein uh, was one that I grabbed. I really enjoyed this very much, um, but it, it um, has a very small cast, and there were concerns uh, for the Playhouse's purposes that this was too New York and too uh, highfalutin, uh, that there was not going to be a lot of people that were going to connect to this one um, on a, uh, a basic level. Um, it involves uh, some sisters who are gathering over the Christmas holiday in London, where one of 
them works and are uh, talking about their failed relationships and things like that. Wendy Wasserstein, uh, most of her plays end with failed relationships, and this is one that actually ends up with a couple of uh, relationships that are on the upswing and are looking like they're going to be positive, um, which was an interesting thing, but it is really very much uh, in the Jewish culture. The entire family is, is Jewish, and those stereotypes uh, about, um, you're not eating enough, you, you haven't called your mother, and stuff like that all come to the fore for this one. It, it's well-written, it's an interesting play with interesting characters, um, and I'm kind of sorry to see that we're not going to try to do that one. This is one uh, that only has two characters, Night Mother by Marcia Norman, and also a Pulitzer Prize winner. Um, it's, it's, it's actually kind of surprising. If you look back at the Pulitzer Prize for staged works, how many women have actually won that? It, it's a, um, a very strong uh, showing from women playwrights. This one uh, features a mother and a daughter and is dark and depressing, and uh, we were not wanting to go dark and depressing with the Playhouse next season, so uh, it involves uh, a young woman who basically has reached the point where she doesn't see any reason for living and is planning to commit suicide and tells her mother that and so the entire play is her mother trying to convince her not to do that. Um, it is timely. very timely. It's very <laughs> very emotional uh, but it could also trigger people that have uh, issues as well. Which one had Pulitzer Prize? Night Mother? Both Night, Night, Mother. Both Night Mother and uh, Crimes of the Heart were Pulitzer and Prize winners. And I can't see that. Um, one I don't physically have here, but I enjoyed reading, was, which is available only as an ebook from the libraries, is uh, Sweat by Lynn Nottage. It was uh, basically written on commission. Uh, it is set in Reading, Pennsylvania um, during two different time periods, one in which uh, a factory, which is the, the place where most of the characters work, the setting itself is a bar um, where all the people come after work um, and to get it, sit around and kibitz and complain and stuff like that. Um, um, but most of them work at a factory. It's never identified what they're making or anything like that. But the factory is in the process of beginning to do downsizing. And one of them uh, has worked themselves up into a position uh, where they are basically a supervisor and they're now having to be the person firing all their friends. And so the set setting in uh, the 1990s is um, kind of depressing uh, as, as all these people are looking at possibly losing their jobs. And then the play also has flash forwards which are sort of interspersed between the er er earlier scenes in which uh, the characters are reuniting after 10 years um, after many of them got fired um, and are sort of looking back at their lives and the experiences that they've had since then. Uh, it was another one that was nominated for several awards. Lynn Nottage uh, has written a number of really powerful plays and a couple of them we are still considering for possibilities for uh, the next season. Uh, Sweat, however, was one that we all agreed was uh, just something that was going to be difficult for us to stage here in Lincoln, but um, it's, a, it's an interesting play, and if you have ebook capabilities, you can get that through the library's ebooks. Um, other things that I have, uh, which were not necessarily things that we were talking about for uh, the Lincoln Community Playhouse, but were things that I've enjoyed in the past year, include the following, and I'm just going to go in the order in the stack that I have here. Uh, everybody is probably well aware of the musical Hamilton, uh, which has been one of the, the hugest hits um, on Broadway for the past two years. I absolutely adore the soundtrack to this, uh, have listened to it multiple times. I did not think that I would ever be able to say that, because it is basically hip-hop and rap music, which are not my genres by any means, but after listening to it one time and going, what was that that I just listened to, and, and not really getting into it, 
And then reading the lyric sheets, because a lot of rap and hip-hop music is very rapid, very fast, reading the lyric sheets and listening to it again, um, I have gained so much more depth um, of, of appreciation for this. This is actually an absolutely phenomenal um, soundtrack, and I would love to see it uh, performed on as a road company uh, trip at some point um, here in the Omaha or Lincoln area. It is phenomenal. The friends that I have had uh, that have seen it in both Los Angeles and Chicago can't stop talking about it. It. Um, so uh, if you're at all interested, now these CDs that I have here are my own personal copies, but um, versions of these are available through the library as well. The Hamilton soundtrack is something that I would highly recommend giving a sample to if you want to see what the phenomenon is all about. Now the Hamilton as a musical also has had a, a script book that's been put out that I believe the libraries have, so you can read the entire script. Um, and there's also historical volumes that have been put out because obviously Lin-Manuel Miranda, the, the person behind it, uh, was inspired by reading reading a biography of Alexander Hamilton and realized, you know, a lot of the things this guy went through are the things that my culture is going through right now. I can identify with this guy and um, put my personal spin on his story. And so a number of historical volumes have come out, not only the one that Miranda uh, um, read that was inspiring to him, but also some others uh, that uh, um, are dealing with Hamilton, but trying to bring it to a modern audience um, so that they will um, be able to appreciate the historical context of things. So that's a good one. Uh, this one um, is probably my favorite Broadway show that I've um, listened to in the last couple of years. It has come from away. It is still on Broadway. It uh, is basically the musical version of the story of all the planes that landed at Gander, Newfoundland at 9-11 that were um, refused entry into the U.S. because of the airspace being shut down. Um, so it is a story of these 6,000 people on these planes that suddenly land in the middle of the night and have no idea where they are because the pilots are not telling them anything, uh, having to interact with all the locals uh, in Gander and the surrounding communities uh, who basically have to take them in. And they think it might just be one night and it turns out to be several days worth. Uh, and what is a very emotional story uh, in its general context uh, is um, superbly told with music. Uh, now, the, the soundtrack to this does not include all the interstitial dialogue that happens between songs so it's sort of a very compressed version of it to listen to the soundtrack but some of the music on this is absolutely phenomenal I have heard a couple of the pieces um, just played on normal radio um, so it's obviously even gained some crossover to just general audiences one of them, uh, the, you have characters who are both pilots and stewardesses and people that were on the planes and people that are the, the in the community, um, the way that it's performed on the stage is it's a cast of, what, about 16 people, but they all play multiple different characters. So a small cast of 16 ends up playing hundreds of characters, basically. And one of the characters that... Um, had a real strong impact on me as one of the pilots, a female pilot who has loved flying ever since she was a small child and uh, sing, sings a song, Me in the Sky, which is probably the signature piece from this particular soundtrack, in which she is singing about how she has this emotional, visceral connection to the sky. That's where she lives. That's okay. where she finds the pleasure in her life. And now something has come between her and the sky. Um, and it is just a very powerful piece of music. This is another one that's available through the library if you're at all interested. There's a marvelous book that also talks about the experience that took place in Gander and the fact that all these people, as they were leaving Gander, ended up deciding they were going to set up a scholarship fund for all the kids in Gander. And right. then there's, but there was a 10-year reunion where most of them came 
came back to Gander. Every all these people from all over the world that got trapped in Gander mm-hmm. made these emotional connections to people there. And ten years after the um, events, went back for a ten-year reunion, and it's just a very emotional story. Well, there was a documentary on the the American planes that landed there and how uh, they wanted to pay back these people in Gander, you know, and they wouldn't accept anything. And uh, so uh, they were, they got the Americans got together and decided they would start a um, foundation or something to collect scholarship mm-hmm. money for the kids. Yeah, but they've got over a million dollars in their foundation now, and they meet annually and disperse the money. And they're educating every child. Yep. Another hit right now on Broadway is Dear Evan Hansen, uh, which basically was the the big Tony uh, show for the most recent round of the Tonys. Uh, it is another powerful emotional story, but it also has a lot of humor to it. Actually, Come From Away has a surprising amount of humor in it. Um, Dear Evan Hansen uh, is a story about... Uh, and sort of an ostracized and very closed-in, slightly autistic young man um, who, in the in the play, has a broken um, wrist, and and so he's got a cast on. Uh, who wanted to be friends with a sports star at his high school. Uh, when the sports star ends up committing suicide, uh, Evan Hansen, our title character, uh, decides that he wants to make that that's not quite his friend's uh, family feel better and so pretends that he and the late guy were friends and had a, had had a long-standing email friendship <laughs> and the family latches onto that as a means of coping during their tra- time of tragedy but unfortunately wants evidence wants to see all the emails and things like that and so it basically snowballs into Evan Hansen and one of his friends having to come up with this fake backstory on this relationship that never existed and realizing as they're going into it and talking to some of their friends that there's a lot of things that people don't know about each other and so it becomes a, a really introspective uh, look at relationships in high school and lies and the repercussions of them um, because eventually he becomes found out about it, um, especially when uh, he basically is is brought up on social media as this absolutely marvelous kid because he was such a good friend to this troubled kid and all of it is lies and the house of lies eventually collapses on him but uh, relationships are reforged in the process. This one has a lot of really good songs. Um, I um, am hoping uh, that 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 was another one that will end up touring, but right now it is like the number one show on Broadway, so it's not likely to be in a touring company anytime soon. Did he ever find out why his friend committed suicide? There's a friend? there's a variety of reasons, oh. uh, emotional issues and also some drug use. Oh. So, um, which is going on, unfortunately, in high schools. Uh, The last I will do in the theater area in terms of soundtracks is this one, which is a little quirky, and this one, unfortunately, the library does not have, but I still wanted to recommend it in case you want to track it down through your own sources. There was a TV series just a few years ago called Smash, which was all about the making of a Marilyn Monroe musical, had a huge cast, was a wonderful show, and ended after two seasons within the context of the TV series, the Maryland musical came to pass, and then the actors were up. There were multiple actors that were up against each other for Tony Awards. So it was basically a a fascinating look at what it takes to make a musical on Broadway nowadays. And what they ended up doing was two unusual things. First of all, they took all the music that was not 
the TV series music, but that was music that supposedly was being featured in that bro- that fake Broadway show, and released a soundtrack as if there was really a Marilyn Monroe Broadway show. So Bombshell is the name of the Marilyn Monroe musical that was that doesn't exist really but all the songs that they created and there's literally 22 songs that were going to be in a Marilyn Monroe musical here's the kicker for a charity event they got the cast of the TV show including the actresses that were playing the Marilyn Monroe um, wannabe um, in the musical together and they did a one time performance of Bombshell so it does exist as a one performance only show that was done on Broadway so this soundtrack really is the soundtrack of a Broadway show. It's a Broadway show that will never be done again, as far as they can tell, um, because none of the big-name stars that were in it want to um, recapture that um, and and do it as a long-term project, but they might do it, who who knows, they might do it as another charity event at some point in the future. It is is actually really, really good music. It's by Mark Shaman, who has done a number of other Broadway musicals. It doesn't really give you the context of the TV series, but if you're interested in a musical about Marilyn Monroe, here's the music that would have gone with it. So that music is from Smash? It is from Smash. It was played as bits within the context of the TV show, but it is the music that was written that was to have been part of the stage show. So it ended up being part of a one-shot stage show, but it it was seen on television. Unfortunately, I don't believe this... Either of the two TV seasons of Smash has come out on DVD. They might be available through Hulu or yeah, one of the other streaming services and stuff like that. I, I collect DVDs, and I bought the first season, but the second season is like $60, so I'm not going to pay that much for a DVD. So that season. belongs to you. That is my own personal one, but I've seen it available at Target and Shopco and, and okay. another store. So if you are interested in it, and it would also actually probably be available for like 8 bucks on Amazon or something like that if you were to order it online. Let's see. I got a couple of other books that are more about the world of the theater, and then we'll move on to some general stuff. Uh, the Secret Life of the American Musical is one that I'm still in the midst of reading. Um, I have my own personal copy. This is the library one. You're welcome to take it if you want. It is a treatise about how Broadway shows are built, what goes into making a Broadway show. It is done from the perspective of a uh, university professor who has taught a class on this for years, and, and many of his colleagues ultimately said, you know, if you just sort of made this a little bit more pop culture oriented, this would make a good book. So that, this is basically a university course that's sort of been polished up to make it more palatable to a general reader. It goes into the history of Broadway musicals, and we're talking American Broadway musicals. He completely abandons and does not touch on things like Andrew Lloyd Webber and British musicals that make it over here and and become huge hits. This is the home-brewed American musicals only, Um, and it breaks it down by category. He talks about, um, well, the tables of contents are... Curtains up, light the lights, what are what opening numbers mean and what their impact on shows are. Uh, the, the I Want song, there's always something in the first 15 minutes that is a I Want song from one of the main ca- characters so you know what their goal is going to be. And he breaks all these things step by step down into exactly what it is that makes a Broadway show. If you're just simply interested in watching Broadway shows, I would encourage you to take a look at this one because it really gives you a little bit more background on the mechanics of how they go about making them. And he also identifies a number of musicals that break all the rules, that don't follow any of the patterns that that he has has identified, um, and explains why some of those may be successes as opposed to things that follow a beat pattern that is very predictable. And yes, if you think about it, and you think about classic American musicals from the 1910s and 20s up to even the um, early 2000s, most of them followed a very specific pattern. Um, even if they seem to break that pattern, most of them don't. Um, it's only been in the last 
last 20 years or so that a lot of uh, people making musicals have tried to break out of that pattern, and some of them have success and some don't. I read this one actually in 2016, so it doesn't count on my 2017 list. But this is in our kids' department at Ben Martin. This is the only copy for the library system, and it is How Does the Show Go On? An Introduction to the Theater. It is oriented towards probably junior high, high school, and above, but it is basically by a mainstream musical producer. In fact, there's a heavy emphasis on Disney shows like the Lion King Broadway show and stuff like that, because this is the guy that uh, wrote the book is the producer of those types of shows. So a lot of the illustrations that you're going to find in here are of the Lion King and, and things like that. Like but it that. basically goes into what is a theater? I mean, it, it bare bones start of what is a theater? What are the parts of a theater? Why do they call the front of the house the house? Why do they call parts of the backstage um, certain parts of it? And then it goes into where does funding come from musicals and, and who does the writing and how do they hire the actors and stuff? So if you're at all interested in the background of stage um, shows, primarily musical shows, this is a fun one to look at, and it's got lots and lots of illustrations done very simply for um, a, a youthful audience. I enjoy this tremendously, and I'm 54 years old. All right, that indeed is it. Um, I'm just going to not necessarily follow my list, but I'm just going to grab things off of my cart here and talk about them in random order. This came out beginning of 2017. It is the latest biography from Carol Burnett, In Such Good Company, 11 Years of Laughter, Mayhem, and Fun in the Sandbox. I am a huge fan. I, if, you, if you've ever attended any of my book talks, you know before that I talk mainly about mysteries and science fiction. However, I do read a lot of nonfiction, especially biographies. Um, and I've enjoyed uh, Carol Burnett's biographies in the past in audiobook form because each of her biographies, she has been the narrator um, in the book on CD version. Um, oddly enough, however, I ended up buying this one in, in, in a hardback, and so I've read this as a physical book. This is, unlike her previous biographies, which talk about a lot of her personal life, this is literally only a biography of her experiences on the Carol Burnett show. That is it. Nothing else, oh. nothing extraneous. And as part of that, she went through, she has archives of every single episode of her show, including the many seasons that have not been syndicated and that nobody has seen on television in decades. Um, and she went through every single episode and used the technology she had available to capture still images that have never been captured as stills before. So this book is filled with all sorts of rare photos, mainly photos that she recreated created from stills uh, of, of her episodes. This uh, talks about the experiences of um, the, the costuming, uh, the, the, like the Gone with the Wind costume, oh, the, the drapes and stuff like that, to uh, the guests. There's special little subsections uh, between chapters. She has little profiles of some of her main guests. Uh, I know we just recently lost... Um, um, Jim Neighbors, and Jim oh, Neighbors yeah. was always her lucky charm. He was the first guest of every season that she ever had, from the very first season on. Um, and she, she talks about some of the guests that made big impressions or that she became long-term friends with. Um, and a lot of this is just talking about the experiences of, of interacting with the audience um, over certain skits and the kinds of reactions that they got, that kind of stuff. So if you're in, at all interested in her TV series, and we had a wonderful uh, reunion show just this past Sunday on television, which unfortunately I didn't know about my missed. So, oh, um, oh, no. uh, but if so you if you love that, this is right up your alley. I highly encourage you to read this. Her other autobiographies, I also encourage you to read, and they do touch on the Carol Burnett show, but they also talk about her relationship with her daughter and and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. This is just the Carol Burnett show and nothing but the Carol Burnett show. Here's a quirky nonfiction title. One of the dangers of working in a library, as you hear from lots of librarians, is 
there's books there that you see and that you want to read all of a sudden, and especially the books that are on our new books displays. Um, and Ben, ben and Martin downtown, we have just a high churn, a high turnover of, of new books, <laughs> and one of our duties is when people return stuff, we immediately are supposed to check them in, and if they're within the last nine months or 12 months, we're to take them out and put them on display. So we're always out there at the new books display. And this is one that um, I, I really didn't have any interest in ships necessarily, but the cover of this one, 50 Ships That Changed the Course of History, A Nautical History of the World, just sort of grabbed my attention. So I grabbed it and started flipping through it, and I really enjoyed this book. Uh, for somebody who didn't have a serious interest in, in nautical history, uh, this book is, is quite fascinating. There are four pages dedicated to each of the individual ships in this, there's technical background about the format of the ship, uh, what, when it was uh, in service, photos, if at all possible, for the really old ancient um, um, ships, it's more um, uh, hand-drawn illustrations or um, photos of whatever um, archaeological remnants there might be of the ships. But each ship gets four pages with a brief history of uh, what that ship's um, impact on nautical history is and the history of the world just in general. Uh, if you're at all interested in Ships dating back to, I mean, the earliest ship listed is Pharaoh Khufu's Solar Barge, and it goes, um, so that's basically uh, 2566 BC, um, and the last ship listed is the one of the massive cruise ships, the Allure of the Seas, which uh, went into service in 2009. So this covers centuries um, uh, of, of time, and there's all sorts of just fascinating little nuggets of history. Um, and there's going to be really well-known ships, um, but then there are going to be some well-known ships, things like the Titanic. Well, actually, I think the Titanic is in here, but there's some other well-known ships that don't make it in here because they weren't the ones that had a groundbreaking impact on something. These are the ships, many of which you've never heard of before, that for one reason or another had a serious impact on history. Um, so if you're at all interested in nautical history, give this one a, take, a look as it's going around the table. I, I, I found it fascinating myself. Since we're here at the holiday season, I'll throw this one in. People are probably well aware of Bob the Street Cat um, because there have been three books out so far um, by um, the author James Bowen. James Bowen was a, a British guy who was basically living pretty much on the street. He had a flat, but he was making his living as a, a busker playing um, his guitar on the street and selling a, a charity magazine um, in London uh, that is... Um, basically a, a project uh, for people who are wanting to get off of the street. Um, they can sell this charity magazine and take a part of the profits from it. Uh, the first two books, um, A Street Cat Named Bob was one of them, um, and I can't blank, I'm blanking on what the second one is, um, but uh, we're basically him talking about having befriended this cat who was injured and kept stalking him in his apartment complex and eventually he took the cat in and used some of his own meager funds to uh, bring the cat up to better health and the cat basically refused to leave him. I mean, he, he basically brought made the cat healthy and then wanted to let it set free again but the cat basically stuck with him and he discovered when the cat would come with him to his busking jobs where he was playing the guitar and stuff that that brought him all sorts of attention people loved the cat who would just sit there and patiently be petted and do little tricks and things like that and so he realized that he now had a best friend and it really did become his best friend it wasn't so much a, I'm going to make use of this cat because he's making me some money it really became that was his main reason for continuing 
continuing to live and make money was to make his life better for himself and the cat. Uh, and this volume, which is the fourth volume out, there were two original volumes and a children's volume that um, Bowen put out. This one uh, came out uh, two years ago, and I enjoyed reading it last year at the holiday time. It basically is a gift from Bob, How a Street Cat Helped One Man Learn the Meaning of Christmas. This is tales about his relationship with Bob that happened during the holidays and over the time period um, of knowing Bob we went from basically not having much money to suddenly having two best-selling books and so this book talks about the experience of, of him as basically a street person suddenly having to adjust his lifestyle um, because he's now showing up on talk shows and has movie deals and things like that. And this is a, a marvelous little snapshot of his experiences as he's tried to improve his life and improve the lives of those around him and cute cat stories. I mean, you can't go wrong with cute cat stories. I just finished this a couple of weeks ago. Um, I read The Martian Chronicles, the science fiction novel, uh, 30 years ago when I was in high school um, and enjoyed it very much at the time and I've sampled it again. It is, it is, The Martian Chronicles is a series of short stories that have little things that tie the stories together but they were originally published as individual stories and then some, one of his, uh, Ray Bradbury's uh, publishers said, you know, this would be a great book, why don't you uh, come up with something that ties all of this together? And so he wrote short little bits that carry from one story to another to make it all tie together and this version is a book on CD version, uh, written, or not written, written by Ray Bradbury, but uh, narrated by Stephen Hoy, uh, who is a Los Angeles actor and, and, and does a lot of voice work. I ended up enjoying this quite a bit. Uh, I had not read the novel in its entirety in, in 30 years, um, so this was the first chance I've had to read the entire thing, and different stories have totally different tones in this, but it is a fascinating uh, look at what a classic science fiction work published back in the 1950s originally um, was like. Uh, it is, is very dated now. You can tell that it's a 1950s thing, but uh, Stephen Hoy really does bring these stories to life and two or three of them are just gut punchers. I mean, they, there's a lot of emotion involved in some of those stories. I am reading this one currently, so you can't have it. Uh, it is a sequel to a classic uh, science fiction novel. H.G. Uh, Wells wrote The War of the Worlds, which everybody is fully aware of, I'm sure. Uh, the novel was then turned into both a radio show by Orson Welles in the 1930s and a feature film uh, in the 1950s where they brought it up to my 1950s time period for the feature film. Um, this is an authorized sequel by the family of H.G. Wells, written by a multi-award winning science fiction author of his own um, credits right now, Stephen Baxter, called The Massacre of Mankind, set 15 years after the original events of the Wells novel, uh, featuring many of the same characters and several original new characters, uh, which posits that the first invasion by Martians was merely a scouting mission, and that they're coming back. And so this is a... Uh, that One of my co-workers at Ben Martin said, you know... The original War of the Worlds is only like 120 pages long. This isn't 120 pages. This is 450 pages, uh, so it's a much larger story. But it basically goes with the concept that the things have happened in Great Britain as a result of the um, first inter interplanetary war. Politics are completely different. It is not 
set in a 1920s that you would recognize because it goes as an alternate history, basically presuming that different politicians came to power based on their policies with regards to what should have happened during the war. Um, so it is it is not only a science fiction novel, but it's also uh, a different Great Britain than you might have expected. Um, I'm only a good... 20% of the way into the book, and I'm enjoying it very much. It's it's written in the exact same style that the Wells book was written in, so it's not brought up to a modern storytelling style. They're really trying to recapture the original. All right, a couple of things that are not science fiction or theater. Um, as you well know from my past talks, I'm the leader of the Just Desserts Mystery Book Group, which meets at South Branch um, 10 months out of the year. Uh, every month we read one book as a group, and everybody discusses that same book, so a little different style than Bethany and Gear's book groups. And a few of the ones that we read as a group this year, I really enjoyed quite a bit. Some of them were sort of, eh, they were okay. Um, but one of the ones that I really did enjoy was uh, the first volume in a relatively new series by Omaha author Alex Kava, Breaking Creed. Um, I love all and this one features a dog trainer um, as the primary sleuth who's an ex-military guy um, and it does cross over with her uh, other long-running series the Maggie O'Dell FBI series Mm -hmm. in that Maggie O'Dell appears as a major supporting character in the Ryder Creed um, novels this one was the first one uh, and it is extremely well written Um, yeah there's a lot of people who like anything that Alex Kava does Um, I particularly enjoyed this one because I love dogs and and the prominence of the dogs, the dogs that he's training, the dogs that he's working with, that he's trying to rehabilitate and stuff, were very prominently featured. Um, I am looking forward to reading the additional volumes. I know there's two other volumes so far in the Ryder Creed series, which I have not had a chance to read, but this one was really good. However, it has one of the creepiest scenes that I or many other people have ever read in, in a thriller book in which... Uh, I'll just give you a warning because this could be something that would trigger uh, phobias of your own in which uh, the Maggie O'Dell character ends up stuck in a pit covered in scorpions Uh, and that just is enough to give you the heebie-jeebies but if you like suspense thrillers with some action thrown in and uh, really interesting characters and dogs I recommend the Ryder Creed series including starting with Breaking Creed the first volume in the series uh, another one that we read as a group was Shutter Island by Dennis Lehane. A lot of what we read uh, for Just Desserts tends to be series books. We don't very often get a chance to read something that's a standalone that has no other books connected to it. Um, however, uh, we had not read in, in 11 years of running Just Desserts, we had, we've, we've tried not to repeat any authors. And so in 11 years, we've only had three repeats, and we had not done a Dennis, Le- Dennis Lehane, and Dennis Lehane doesn't have a lot of things that tie together, that most of his stuff is standalone. This one got turned into a uh, feature film starring Leonardo DiCaprio, which plays fast and loose with the novel. There's a lot of changes between the novel and the feature film. It is set at a, um, basically an asylum off the coast and uh, features a couple of damaged detectives who are trying to track down a woman who has disappeared from the um, prison asylum, but there's a lot more going on to it. It's got a lot of depth. There's twists and turns. It's almost like a Twilight Zone story in some ways because there's so many uh, things that turn the plot on its ear on, the, on just the spur of the moment that you're not expecting. So if you're interested in twisty, turny suspense novels, uh, anything by De- Dennis Lehane is recommendable, but um, my, 
the Just Desserts group um, all generally really enjoyed Shutter Island. We thought it was extremely well written, and a couple of the people uh, said that they were extremely disappointed in the feature film version of it because uh, there's some major changes that completely destroy the motivation of the main characters from the book. So, this was not ju- read for Just Desserts. However, I did read it last year after Christmas. It is The Mistletoe Murder and Other Stories, which is a short story collection released posthumously by P.D. James, who is uh, one of Britain's greatest mystery writers. Unfortunately, she passed away a couple of years ago, but in her papers they found some things that had not been ever published. So the title story, The Mistletoe Murder, um, is a Christmas setting, and the others all could potentially be considered um, uh, holiday stories as well. All well-written, very twisty and turny as well, and very dark. P.D. James was, a, uh, in many ways, a very dark writer. If you like mysteries and you like the Christmas setting, I recommend this. But if you're looking for something light, I do not recommend this. Okay. Here's one that I just finished a couple of weeks ago. Uh, one of my favorite books from a couple of years ago was Wild, uh, which was the story of Cheryl Strayed and her journey up the, App- not the Appalachian Trail, it was on the West Coast. She basically hiked the, the trail that's out on the west um, side of the U.S. Um, and had lots of uh, issues with the hike, but she also had lots of issues in her life, and it was basically a chance for her to try to purge some of the things that were bad in her life and, and restart. Uh, she has written several other books as well, and this book is actually a book of her, her quotes pulled from her other writings and speeches that she's given and things like that. She said in her introduction to Brave Enough that... Um, she has collected quotes for decades, and a lot of those quotes that she has collected are things that help her get through her daily life. I mean, things that when she's having problems, she digs out her quote book, not, uh, not of her own quotes, but of other people's quotes, and uh, some of the things that she reads from other people end up spurring her on to get past humps that are going um, that she's having to deal with in her in her life and she had several people telling her you the some of the stuff you've written is filled with those kinds of inspirational quotes she's also kind of body so some of the dialogue in here is filled with four-letter words shall we say um, but uh, she took that person's advice and decided to gather all the things that she thought were inspirational or semi-inspirational quotes from her own writing and she's put them together in a book called Brave Enough and I ended up copying three or four things out of these which I have stuck on my locker at work so uh, she has some interesting points of view Timely uh, Wrinkle in Time Uh, it is a youth fiction title, fantasy title. Uh, it is considered one of the classics of youth fantasy. It's by Madeline Langell, uh, and uh, was done decades ago. It has also been turned into a graphic novel, which is what I have here. Unfortunately, all copies of A Wrinkle in Time are checked out system-wide in the, in the library system right now, but the graphic novel is available. Um, and this was just done a couple of years ago, and it, it's a fascinating um, adaptation of the novel. The reason I bring this up is uh, my science fiction club uh, read and discussed this, and we all agreed that it was one of the better novels that we've read in the last um, five or six years. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really holds up well in time. Uh, it is a great, what they call, gateway novel. So if you have somebody, um, a youth in your um, life who is looking for something interesting to read, has not necessarily sampled science fiction and fantasy, uh, I would highly recommend A Wrinkle in Time as something that would give them a sample of that field and they might be interested enough to continue reading more of that type of thing. And the main reason it's timely is that there's a brand new movie adaptation that is going to be hitting uh, movie theaters in January. Um, Big name stars, Oprah Winfrey, Reese Witherspoon, people like that. And I will admit that the trailers for the movie that I have seen 
look like they take a lot of liberties with the story, I would really highly recommend that you give somebody, uh, if you haven't read it yourself, that you sample either this graphic novel or the novel itself, or recommend it to youth in your life who might be looking for something like that to read. How is the graphic novel different from the actual? Like, it trims some things down. Uh, it also has some, I think they made some questionable choices. It's all blue tone. And one of the main characters is the man with the red eyes uh, that the, the, the children who are the protagonists run into this, basically this evil character who is distinguished by being the man with the red eyes. And they chose not to add spots of additional color in here, which would have made it absolutely perfect. I mean, uh, blue tone is great, but I, there are scenes where other things have color that are impactful in the novel, and it would have been nice to have done that as well. So, um, but it's still... I'd say a faithful adaptation, it just trims out some excess stuff that sort of bogs down the story a little bit. So, um, admittedly, I only have five minutes left. I'm just going to grab a couple more things. If people want to have me continue beyond that, that's up to you, but I've been told in the past, try to wrap up by 11.30. So, uh, so I will hit two more things that are high on my list. This is my own personal copy, so no, you can't have it. This is... Nebraska Poetry, a sesquicentennial anthology, which came out last, uh, uh, basically this summer, um, and there were big events downtown. Uh, the world premiere of this book was done at Bennett Martin. Uh, it is a, basically an anthology edited by Daniel Simon that features work from 1867 to 2017 by Nebraska poets. It is a absolutely wonderful collection of varying different styles of poets, and there's not just an emphasis on recent poets, even though there's so many of them nowadays, there really is a lot of examples of things that are historically significant in Nebraska history. So if you're at all interested in poetry and are looking for something to finish off your 2017 reading while it is still celebrating Nebraska sesquicentennial this year, I highly recommend taking a look at this. The libraries do have six or seven copies, uh, but they are all currently checked out um, and there is there are holds waiting. So you probably won't get to it before the end of the year, but I still recommend tracking it down if you'd like to sample Nebraska poetry. In the meantime, feel, feel free to take a look at the table of contents. You can see what is a good example in there. I don't imagine that anybody at these tables is going to enjoy these, but I still want to talk about them because they're fun. Uh, I, I don't read a lot of comic books nowadays, uh, but I do read these graphic novels where they compile like six issues of a comic book into a storyline. And something that DC Comics has done in the last... 10 years is that they have tried to recapture the feel of earlier versions of comic books. Today's comic books tend to be really dark and depressing. And Batman the TV series with Burt Bert Ward and Adam West was so so over the top in its satirical nature that it doesn't really stylistically match up with any other version of Batman, which are all these dark and, and moody things. And the comic book company put out a comic book called Batman 66, in which they try to tell Batman stories, but with a huge sense of humor and, and fun. And that has been so successful that they ended up putting out Wonder Woman 77, in which they still tell modern or they tell uh, Wonder Woman stories set in the 1970s, featuring the Linda Carter television series Wonder Woman. So mm. we're not talking about the most recent movie that just came out. And so there are three volumes so far out um, featuring stories set in the 1970s by modern writers, but trying to recapture the fun and and amusement that that 
kind of kind of campy Wonder Woman TV series from the 1970s had. And they went in even so far as in the most recent volume, te- teaming her up with another female icon from the 1970s, the Bionic Woman. So the Bionic Woman meets Wonder Woman in a comic book from 2017 set in the 1970s. So if you're at all interested in any of those, feel free to grab and, and take a look at them. And I will last finish off with one of my favorite reads of the past year. I'm 54 years old. I don't have any children. There's no reason why I would necessarily be reading picture books. But when you see them on the displays at the library, some of them just grab your attention. The covers are so interesting looking. And... Uh, I remember the picture books that I read or had read to me when I was a kid being really kind of bland and not that interesting. I mean, some of them still stick in my head as favorites from that time period, but the things that they're putting out now are works of art. The the, the art is so incredible. The storytelling is so marvelous. And there are two books by Ryan T. Higgins, which I have absolutely adored. Uh, One is called Mother originally it's Mother Goose, but it's actually Mother Bruce, um, and the other one is a sequel to, to it called Hotel Bruce, in which a bear out foraging just before the winter hits thinks he's going to end up eating. He finds a, a batch of duck eggs and thinks he's just going to eat the duck eggs, but when he takes them home to uh, prepare in some way, the ducks all hatch, and all the ducklings latch onto him as a surrogate mother. And he doesn't want this. He doesn't want anything to do with this, but they won't leave him alone. Even when he introduces them back to ducks, they don't recognize the ducks as being their family. They're, he is their mother. And so the entire book is him trying to get rid of these this this little flock of ducklings, all of whom insist that he's the mother and that there's nothing that he can do about it. And so by the end of the book, basically, uh, he has taken them in an airplane down to Florida so that they can enjoy having... They were supposed to have migrated already, so he's taken them by plane to migrate. And the second book is him, once again... He's living with teenage ducks now um, in his household, but he ends up going on a trip, and when he comes back, he discovers that the the mice in the neighborhood have taken over his home and turned it into a hotel, and so basically he has to try to figure out how to stop his home from being a hotel with the assistance of all his duck um, children. Um, the, The art is just absolutely marvelous it's just humorous it's it's it captures the tone he's got this constant scowl on his face there, there there's not a single thing where he's not scowling but he's this like lovable curmudgeon and and so if you're at all interested in kids books i recommend mother bruce and hotel bruce by ryan higgins in a similar fashion another book that i grabbed a couple of months ago is The Big Bad Fox, which is almost the same exact story. It's a fox that basically has made friends with a whole bunch of people on the farm that he has to go raid every day for his food, and so they no longer consider him a threat. And when the nearby wolf realizes that the fox has basically emasculated himself, he insists that the fox has to go in and steal the, the chicken's eggs, and he does, and he takes the eggs home, and they hatch, and they latch onto him as the surrogate mother. And then he has to hide these chickens, these chicks, from the wolf, because he doesn't want to be shown to not be a big, tough fox, but in the meantime, he's basically becoming a mother. Um, so another one, this is by a French artist, and the art in this is Aww. wild, but it's also extremely humorous as well. So very, very similar story to the Mother Bruce. So thank you for putting up with me, and I appreciate thank your you. attendance. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. If you would like to comment on this or any of our podcasts, you can do so by visiting our podcast page at lincolnlibraries.org slash podcasts, where you can also download our podcasting theme music for use as your ringtone. 
You can become a fan of our podcast by searching for Lincoln City Libraries Podcasts on Facebook.